It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. On this week's show, the story of something we often discuss on this podcast, an effort to create standardized data in a field that doesn't really have standardized data. And that's about all this conversation has in common with the other conversations we've had on this program. Because Dr. Justin Schmidt, an entomologist, is trying to gather information about pain by stinging himself over and over with different insects. The Schmidt Pain Index is along a 1 to 4 scale, and he places different stinging insects on that scale by testing them out on himself. Schmidt won an Ig Nobel Prize for this last year, and now there's a new book, The Sting of the Wild, which is actually totally fascinating. And often on this podcast, I try to find new questions to ask people, especially if they've written a book. I try to not ask them what I imagine is the same question they get over and over and over. But that's pretty hard to do in this case. So I started with Dr. Schmidt with the obvious first question, which is, why did you, you know, sting yourself with insects so much? Here he is. It started out first kind of as a casual sort of thing. I would be out collecting, and when I was studying the biochemistry of the harvester ant venom, I realized that it was really unusual, or at least that was what I thought, because I had been used to honeybee stings and yellow jackets and paper wasps and, you know, sweat bees, bumblebees, the common things we see around the garden and out in our parks. And it felt quite different. So I said, well, are the, are the harvester ants really different and the only way I could really figure that out was expand my experience to a whole lot of other species. So I went to the tropics where there's all kinds of wonderful creatures down there that are stinging. So I was then comparing these and just sort of casually noting, well, their pains did often quite different from harvester ant or from a honeybee. And I was just kind of making notes and not really going anywhere with that. You know, I just... I was trying to compare the biochemistry of the venoms still of these other species. And finally, I had enough data to publish the first paper, and I said, oh, okay. I was comparing about 20 different venoms for destructive ability to destroy tissues in our body, in particular blood cells. And I said, oh, by the way, is there any correlation between my casual observations, I'd put numbers on them, of pain and the ability to destroy blood cells? And to my great disappointment, uh, no, there wasn't any relationship. <laughs> but that was pretty much where I, I got started. And then I realized, well, there's a lot more questions I can answer besides just destroying blood cells with uh, comparing pain with other biological properties of, of the stings. And so that was pretty much where I really took off and started examining a large number of species. You say that there's different kinds of pain, but you're, you're, you're going beyond just kind of degrees of pain, like this hurts and then this hurts more and this really hurts. You really get descriptive and sort of qualitative about the kind of pain, right? Exactly. Some pain, like the classical that most of us are familiar with, is something like the honeybee or the yellow jacket. And to me, they're, they're relatively similar. They both feel like something really hot, like a, a big ember popped out of a campfire that you had and landed on your arm, and it's got this burning feeling. And it's really a, a burny, hot, you know, heat sort of feeling. And then there's others. Some of the ants that I've worked with are very clean, you know, if, if I may use that terminology, very pure, kind of a lancellating, like a piercing, sharp, you know, but it's not burning at all. 
and then there's some others, uh, velvet ants, and they're kind of a rashy thing. You, they sting you, and it feels like you've gotten into a super nettle patch. And they itch, and you have this urge. You just have to, urge, you just have to rub this thing. And you rub it, and of course, it hurts like the devil. It hurts even more. So, you know, that's that's another one. And then you get some of the things like the harvester ants, which feel like it's a really deep pain, as if they're going beneath your skin, which, you know, obviously they aren't. They only have a, a stinger that's, you know, probably about uh, 1 25th of an inch long. It's, you know, very short and can only go a little bit in. But it feels like they're going in and tearing apart your, your tendons and your nerves and your muscles deep. So you, you do get these various different sensations that, that the stings have, in addition to, of course, the rating of, of one through four. But how then do you balance that very qualitative, impressionistic, kind of written description of pain with the fact that you're ending up with a scale? And this, was that kind of a data-gathering challenge to bridge the gap between this impression of pain and description of pain and trying to have some sort of rigor and comparison. Exactly. That's why I call it semi-quantitative because the numbers are, of course, numbers are quantitative. But how you assign the numbers is is almost an art form as well as quantitative because I have to evaluate such things as the intensity of the pain and then I'll throw in a little bit of a factor of how long it lasts. And something like the harvester ant ends up being a three rather than a two. If it only hurt for two minutes, I would just say, well, it's probably a two or you know slightly above that. It's not really that intense, at least not initially. But when it goes on for four hours, you got to give some credit for the four hours compared to five minutes. But yeah, they, they hurt for a very, very long time. So you, that's kind of the artistic point. You say, well... If you add a, a long time to uh, a certain intensity, you can kick it up one more point. Or uh, example, I, I in one case don't do that, and that's for the bullet ant versus the tarantula hawk. They're both fours, and that's based strictly on intensity because the, the intensity, in fact, the tarantula hawk may actually have immediate pain slightly higher but it only lasts two minutes, whereas the bullet ant comes in these waves, these crescendos, and then these troughs where it backs off a little bit, these waves that keep coming at you for 12 to 36 hours. And the absolute intensity is no higher, but the length. And you could say, well, you know, why don't you make that a five? And I, I thought about that, and I thought, well, when you're doing quantitative analysis and you have one point at a five, what are you going to do with it? it? It's really hard to measure that and get anything useful out of it. So I keep it at a four based mainly on intensity. So it, it is, to a certain extent, semi-quantitative. So this is a one through four scale, right? Do you have gradients in between? I do add uh, halfway, which I don't really like to do. It's it's kind of messy because you'd, you'd, you'd like to have discrete things. But it turns out when you plot these on a, on a scatter diagram graph that the, the halves don't really interfere in any meaningful way. And what a half really means is that I can get something, for example, if you're in the northeast or midwest in 
couple of months and you're out in the summer and it's humid and you're sweating and this little gray bee, we call them sweat bees, lands on you and gets pinched either in the crook of your elbow or underneath your your clothes and it stings you, that's a one and it's it's nothing really to write home to mom about. You know, it, it hurts, but, you know, you got to be a super wimp to be bawling over that for any length of time. And, and, and then on the other hand, you've got a honeybee. You know, you're out running around at that same time and you step on a clover in your bare feet because, you know, you've been tired of having feet shoes on all winter long and you want to get wiggle your toes and get out there and feel the nice moist soil and grass. And oops, you stepped on a, on a bee on a clover. That really hurts. You know, that's considerably more. And so you'll get some things that you can say, well, they're certainly less than a than a honeybee sting, and they're a little bit more than a sweat bee, and and so I don't really want to put them in either one. So I say, ah, well, we'll call that a one and a half. Like I said, it's not as satisfying as I might like, but it's about the best we can do. So give us a little tour of the one through four. And I guess, is it linear one through four? Or does it, does it uh, ramp up as we get higher and higher with each gradient? I, I tend to think of it as being sort of a exponential, but I, I'm not really sure because, again, we have the problem of how we can't get a, a true quantitative measure of put an electrode in and say that it's 100 times more on the scale out of four than it is, is out of three or two. So we're, we're again coming back to the old limitation, which has been plaguing us from the very beginning. But my feeling is you get one sweat bee, and it's not half as painful as a honeybee. It's a whole lot less, like I would say probably about a tenth as much. And you go from a honeybee, which is a two, to a harvester ant, which is a three. And and it's it's clearly not just a simple you know doubling or half more. It's... It's more like five to maybe ten times more painful. You're kind of gritting your teeth and kind of holding your breath because it comes in waves too, uh, like the bullet ant, just not as, as intense and goes on for a long time. So you get tired jaw muscles, you know, gritting your teeth with this thing. And so that would be considerably worse than if you give me the choice of one harvester ant or two honeybees, I'll take the two honeybee stings. So you could kind of take that analogy and say, well, how would you? How many would it take of the lower one before you'd consider it? I want to choose the other one. So something like a fire ant, which is a fascinating one for people that are unfortunate enough to have fire ants in their environment, which is a lot of the people of the South and Texas, that one fire ant, which I don't know anybody who's been stung by just one fire ant. They come in hordes. But one is actually only a one. So it's almost a theoretical rating of one because you never get one. You usually get 10 or a dozen or 20 or, you know, large number depends on how fast you just go, oh my goodness, these things are swarming up my leg and they're up past my knee and you're flapping away violently trying to, you know, get rid of them. And you get a couple of dozen stings. And that composite would clearly be a two. But if you get just one sting, you know, given the choice of one har- one fire ant sting versus a honeybee, that's 
kind of obvious you're going to take the fire ant. Uh, 15 or 20, uh, well, some people would go with the fire ant, some would go with the honeybee. I don't know. It's a little bit up in, up in the air, your choice. And so who's all the way over on the top end of your scale? I know you've mentioned a few of them. Yeah, I actually have three, and the least well-known one is what I call the warrior wasp, and it's a big black wasp about the size of the paper wasps that we have in North America that nest under eaves of, or, you know, of roofs and in barns and those sorts of things. Kind of a scary thing. You see something that's jet black. That kind of catches your attention. Ooh, why is this thing looking like this? This is kind of scary. And for darn good reason, I got stung by one once. It was a kind of an odd situation. I wasn't trying to get stung. I was trying to record their warning sound. They make this drumming sound as a warning. Hey, back off. You know, like a rattlesnake will wiggle its tail or or a skunk will wave its its tail around and stomp its legs before it sprays you, kind of a warning. And and we were trying to record this. It had never been done. So one of them flew out and actually stung me. And, oh, my goodness, it, it lost its stinger in my skin just like a, uh, like a honeybee does. And I just sat on this stump that we had in, in the cut-off tree in the forest just put my hand hands over my face and just sat there and just kind of an agony for, I don't think I moved for about 10 or 15 minutes and the pain was still going on about an hour later. It was really intense. And so that, that was a four, mainly because of the length of the time. If it had been just that intensity for, say, two or three minutes, I would have said, that's a good solid three. But because it tormented me and made me in misery and agony for an hour, I said, I'm going to kick that up. You know, that that much grief is certainly worth another notch. And then then we go from there to the other one, which is the almost ephemeral tarantula hawk, which is really amazing because it, it hits you like a 20,000-volt you know, shock. It just absolutely It's called the tarantula hawk? Uh, is it either of those yeah, things? Yeah, it's big... Uh, it eats tarantulas, and it's actually a wasp. And so I think it's called a hawk because it's so big. And, you know, hawks are predators and very fast and very fierce and strong. And this is a very strong wasp. It's about two inches long. But if you do happen to grab one, it gives you this absolutely electrifying sting, which is instantaneous. All you can do is open your hand or whatever is holding it, throw your arms up and scream. You know, it's just absolutely debilitating, just shuts you down completely. But the good thing is it lasts about two or three minutes. So it, it, by the time you're done screaming and you're about ready to get your breath because you've been completely out of breath from all this screaming, then uh, the pain's pretty much gone away and it, it doesn't even leave a trace of pain. You know, you at least like some kind of badge for your valor, you know, have this swollen finger or, you know, something of that sort of itch, you know, something to say, look, look how tough and what a hero I am. I survived this thing. No, there's none of that. It just goes away at the little tiny, like a mosquito bite, you know, you'll see a little, little red center and, and that's about it. And so that's, that's the four that's more commonly experienced in, in North America. The bullet ants, which are the other, and that's the big grandmama, I guess we should say, because all stinging insects, of course, are 
are female. They live in the New World tropics from about Nicaragua down into central southern Brazil. And these things are just amazing. You know, they they hit you, and we get the name. It's a literal translation from the Spanish. The Spanish is bala, which literally means bullet. And it's, it's almost as if you're, you know, you're walking along and you're, you're tired and you lean up against a tree or you hold on to a liana, a vine-like thing in the forest. The next thing you know that somebody shot your hand. We just happen to put your hand on a bullet ant and it feels like it literally shot you. And it'll probably hurt for about 24 to 36 or even more hours. It comes in these these amazing waves of pain. It's something like that life-threatening, or it's really just pain? It's really just pain, which is one of the fascinating things that, oh, true, if, you, if you're really small, if you're a little thing like a shrew or a, or a mouse or something with this big ant and it got a good dose on you, it probably would kill you. But there's never been a person recorded as having any long-term damage, you know, no loss of fingers or hand or arm or anything, no deaths. None of that with Harvard or with, with bullet ants. They're all just here in kind of misery and pain, and you're none the worse for the wear at the end of it. But they teach you a lesson. Oh, yes, definitely. And that's, of course, exactly what they're trying to do. Describe the methodology, as it were, for when you were trying to get stung. How would you go about actually measuring this in a controlled way? In a controlled way, it's it's actually rather boring. That what I do is I have to catch something like I had potter wasp, and I was interested. Potter wasps essentially never sting you. They they're solitary and they have nothing really to defend. And what you do is you kind of hold them. Or what I do is I I hold them up against my against my left forearm, kind of in the middle, kind of poke the tail of the thing, which is where the business end is, into my skin and kind of try to irritate the wasp enough to come on and sting me now and you know, do your thing. And, and sometimes they're more interested in struggling and getting away than they are in stinging. But eventually you get them to sting you and then you can record and pretty much as, as expected from their life history and, and all that, they're basically a one, you know, pretty pretty trivial, you know, nothing nothing really spectacular. You know, I'm curious what your notion of uh, control is in this case or how should we think of you as a, as a reliable narrator? How should we think about your experiences as compared to other people's experiences? I, I have two ways to try to what I call normalize the data. In other words, make it so it's on a, a scale that's reproducible and measurable you know, from one time to the next. And the first is to define the honeybee as a two. And, and the reason we do that is it's the most common stinging insect that people experience worldwide. They're everywhere where people live pretty much. And sooner or later, most people end up having the short end of the deal with a honeybee and getting stung. So that's the anchor that, for example, you might feel a honeybee sting, and who knows, I'm just guessing, it might hurt you only a fifth as much as it hurts me or maybe five times more. There's no way for me to know. 
and but whatever it is, if if you call it a two, then if you get stung by a sweat bee, you'll you'll probably call that a one because it's even though it may again be one fifth as much as it hurts me or five times more depending on the case, compared to your honeybee, it's a constant. So we therefore take out the variability of you versus me. So that's the the first way I try to make it reproducible. The second way is I try to get recordings from other people. You know, most people aren't in the business of catching stinging ants, wasps, and bees. I think you're probably the only person who's in the business of doing what you're doing. I would I would guess. Well, that's probably true. But that said, I have a number of colleagues who were working on social insects. And when they get stung, they've all been stung, of course, by a honeybee. And so I'll say, oh, you got you got stung by uh, Agelea, which is a tropical wasp we call the, I call it the vulture wasp. They scavenge meat from dead animals, and they actually, for being little, hurt remarkably much. Anyway, I say, well, how, how does that compare to a honeybee? And since the person's been stung by a honeybee, they can say, oh, well, yeah, that's, that's at least equal to a honeybee. I'd call that maybe a three. And so that's usually what I would do as well when I've gotten stung by them. So you can just kind of accumulate, you know, these stories from other people who are reliable entomologists. And I've been known to sometimes set up sort of situations where I don't intentionally get people stung, but I don't really sort of discourage it. And so I can get a comparison, you know, of their rating compared to to mine of, of the thing. And the funny thing is it almost always matches, you know, just about perfectly. So that that makes me feel that if you come back in 100 years from now, and somebody's decided, hey, we finally got a way to put numbers on, get a, a scale where we can read from zero to a thousand on some electronic device of what pain really is. I would like to think that you would have the same kind of ratings that that I've recorded here. Were you worried that your perception would change over time? I mean, did you become just more pain tolerant as this went on? That is a concern that I, I was worried about. And again, that's why I wanted the kind of outside control of other people who don't get stung so much because people would say, well, you're pain dead or brain dead, whatever you know phrase you want to apply to me. And, and I thought, well, actually, that, that's a possibility. You know, how can I control that? Maybe I'm just getting habituated and no longer detect pain in, in the fashion that, that I used to. And finding other people who have been stung many times less frequently and their ratings of, of something is pretty much the same as mine. So I conclude that, well, if I've changed, it isn't substantial and I therefore tend to trust my own pain you know, ability now versus 20 years ago. So I don't know if you have an answer to this question, but you've probably thought about this. What is pain? 
that's the that's the most fascinating of all questions, and and I actually almost thought about writing a book about it. And then I realized, well, I couldn't because I couldn't give you an answer. <laughs> that never but stopped what, a what lot I, of authors from writing their books. But yes, go ahead. Yeah, I I kind of view pain as as the body's indication that damage has occurred, is occurring, or is about to occur. In other words, it's it's really a warning, and pain in itself. Is, is not damage. So it, it's really, you could say, in a certain extent, it's a signal which is suitable for being cheated upon, which is what the stinging insects do. They, they make this intense pain for the sting, and they're cheating. And why I say they're cheating is because for the amount of pain that you get in, say, a honeybee sting, you would say, oh, my goodness, that ought to be like I put my hand on a glowing red burner of a stove. You know, the pain should be, which, of course, does serious damage. And and the honeybee doesn't really do any damage at all. You know, you get a little bit of swelling and, you know, a white, a white wheel in the center and a red flare around that, and you might get some itching and swelling. But you're, you're none the worse. You don't have skin sloughing off and you don't have any scars or any, you know, real damage or anything of that sort. So you could say it's, it's kind of cheating. It, it's making you think that something really serious has happened to you, and yet it hasn't. So they, they've really won the uh, psychological warfare game. But this us. is a, a bit of a point of controversy, right? Or this is a point of contention in that it's unclear whether pain is you know, a pure psychological sensation, as you're describing, or whether it is actually a, a physical thing to be dealt with in the same way as other physical maladies. I think it's a little bit of both, and that's what makes it so fascinating and so difficult and confusing, that we have various systems within our nervous system in the spinal cord and in the brain for attenuating the pain. So the pain may may have the same signal coming up from the finger that got caught in the door as it was slammed, and it may have different attenuation in our brain so that what we perceive consciously is different from what the signal would be coming up from our finger. And so, and it can vary, and that's, that's what the drug, drugs that we take for analgesia are basically trying to do is, is change it so that the pain reception that we perceive is a lot less as a result of modifying how the brain perceives it. And and so it's it's both physical. There's clearly some signals coming up from our sensory pain receptors throughout our body, wherever they have to get happen to get stimulated, and what finally ends up in our brain. And there's a whole lot going on in between. And so when I go to the doctor and I've hurt something, you know, they ask me how much does a hurt scale of one to ten. I'm wondering what you think the point of that question is. And I guess I'm also wondering how you find yourself answering that question now. I, I'm not really sure what the point is. I, I'm actually married to a doctor. She probably would clobber me if she were here. But, uh, yeah, it, it seems to me people have such, you know, wide perceptions that some things, you know, like you stub your toe and some people will say, oh, my goodness, that's that's a nine and, you know, worst thing around. And, you know, somebody else will say that, you know, oh, well, I've had lots of, Things that I closed doors or slammed boards on my finger. Eh, you know, it's a two or three. I just live with it. I was clumsy and wasn't paying attention. And 
So I think an awful lot of it really is very subjective in that perhaps the most useful thing the doctor can get out of it is the psychological. They can say, oh, this person perceives this this pain as being really high when normally for what, what they have shouldn't be that high. And so then they therefore modify their way of talking with and, and handling the situation to try to bring that person's perceived pain and the, the reaction to the pain down to a tolerable level where they can be a lot more comfortable. And I guess it's about the change over time, right? If you're seeing someone for an injury one week and they say it's a seven and then the next week it's a four, there's something about that change regardless of their particular scale means indicates something. And an experience too, if, you, if you're, say, working on cars as a car mechanic, many of us as you know, youngsters were kind of infatuated with the mechanics of fixing cars and you know, you wrap your knuckles invariably sooner or later, and, you know, wrench slips and you wham it. Well, after you've had this happen to you a couple of dozen times over the months or years, you kind of get to, oh, you know, another bruised knuckle or another poke with a screwdriver, you know, hit me or something of this sort. And you tend to discount it because you've, you've experienced that before. But in your very first experience, oh, my goodness, that's really bad. And, so I think we do habituate to, you know, the pain after a while. We just kind of familiar with it. We've been discussing how hard it is to discuss pain and our sort of how we don't have a reliable common language. And I wonder if at all you feel like there, there's implications there for the fact that there's a growing crisis of pain, addiction to pain medicine in this country. And I wonder if the fact that we don't have reliable language kind of plays a part in that. Exactly. I think that is, is the problem. We, we don't really have a proper language for pain. You think of colors, and we can come up with probably 50 or 100 names for different colors, different hues and tints and you know whatever. I don't even know the proper terminology, but the color people do. And we have this depauperate list of just a very few words that we use for describing pain and again, that's back to the whole thing of how do we measure and how do we quantify the different kinds of pain and different intensity. We have intensity and and flavor, so to speak, of the pain. And we don't really have good terms for either one of them. You know, I try to have piercing versus burning, which will give the, the flavor of the pain. And and the one, two, three, and four will give you the intensity. But it's it's really rather primitive in, in retrospect. And it's kind of a disappointment, and I think that causes the medical profession a lot of trouble because if you can't precisely define something, it's awfully hard to you know treat it. Did you feel like you reached a level of expertise? Do you feel like you just did enough to build a data set where you can sort of rest on your on your scale and say this feels reliable and solid to me? Pretty much that that's true. I got to thinking that I as as I started finding fewer and fewer opportunities to add to it, and I got to thinking, oh goodness, you know, I here I am, I'm about retirement age, although I'm not retired, but, you know, getting there. And you think, 
last thing I want to do is have all this work, you know, go with me to the grave. And so I'd better get off my duff and publish this because I'm not going to really refine it that much more. I've got 82, 83 different data points. And, you know, if I add another two or three or four or five, it's not likely to change the picture that much. So I said it's time to, you know, you know put this all together because I think it's about as complete as we need for telling the story. What is you, – you've referenced it a few times, but, you know, what is the future of measuring pain? Uh, where do you want this to go? What feels to you like a reliable, systematic – uh, you know, approach to coming up with a standard? I'm not really sure where we can go on the pain scale itself. We can go a lot further, I think, on using the pain scale for helping reduce misery and, and human pain in that if we have the pain scale and people are recording that their pain is is eight or nine or, or a very high number and we can test various different medications that maybe block particular receptor in the base of the brain or the spinal cord, something of this sort. And if they can then tighter down the pain, say, oh, well, now it's only a two or a three. I can get on with life. You know, that I think is a major success story. And that's what I think we can do with the the pain scale is try to use that as a way of quantifying that, oh, we've we've got some treatments now which are better than the ordinary things that that are really rather unsatisfactory, the opiate-derived things for analgesia or heavy-duty steroids for dealing with inflammation. Both of these have lots of side effects, and we'd like to get a little more precise ways of, of dealing with pain. And we have to be able to measure the pain in order to say, well, we're making some progress. Hey, we're, we're close to success at at helping people in a really meaningful way. But are you saying you don't think there's going to be a day where, where there's a, a painometer or a hurtometer or some sort of external device that can quantify pain? I hope there is, and, and I hope it's actually fairly soon. Uh, it's mystified me actually why we don't have one. When I originally started this 30, 35 years ago, I was mystified. But here it is. I'm almost the same status 35 years later, and I would think, gosh, by now we ought to have a way that we can put some cuff on you or or an electrode in on you, you know, something and, and measure some response which would give us a reliable indication of discharge from, you know, the pain receptors. And as far as I know, we haven't really highly developed that into anything that's that's routine. I think there's some good progress going on, but I I haven't seen anything that's kind of ready for the clinic yet. So you've really been sticking – I mean you're an entomologist, so you've been sticking with insects. But have you compared notes with like other pain people? Have you talked to the to the hot pepper folks or the you know sleep on a bed of nails folks and, try and compared notes or data sets? Well, maybe over a couple of beers but not in any kind of a scientific sense. It's It's one of those things that – they they do seem to be different. I've I've noticed that hot peppers in particular. We had one fellow who was seemed immune to sting pain. Just absolutely amazing. I've never seen anybody else like him. I thought he simply had no pain receptors. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know. But we fed him a habanero chili, which is a very hot pepper, and he bit into that. It was just like flames. He was just speechless and 
felt like he was having flames coming out of his mouth and nose and ears and you know all of this and so he obviously had pain receptors for uh, for chilies but he didn't seem to have for stings and I don't know what to make of that wow. um, all right well you know maybe one of them will write a book and then we can start to sort of build a, a large catalog but um this is really interesting research and I really appreciate uh, you, you writing this up thank you so much Dr. Schmidt's book is called The Sting of the Wild. You can find a link to buy it and read more about the Schmidt Pain Index on our website, 538.com slash podcasts. If you've ever been stung by a bullet ant or a tarantula hawk and the feeling has returned to your fingers, send me an email. Points editor is Chadwick Matlin. Jonathan Yales helped produce this episode, and we have studio help from Tony Chow. Joel Werner helped to mix and produce this episode. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. My name is Jody Avergan. You can find me on Twitter or email me at podcasts at 538.com with any ideas or comments about the show. And don't forget about defeatedjoy.com, where we are gathering your playlists that defy the spotify algorithm there are about 20 playlists up there already it's all i've been listening to lately defeatedjoy.com i bought it for 12 dollars, and it has already paid off many times over be sure to subscribe to what's the point in itunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review it really does help others discover the show thanks for listening see you soon